Turn with me, if you would, as a starting place to Romans chapter 6. At some point here, I'll get there, and at some point, we'll turn to a few other passages, and it's kind of an abnormal study in the life of our church, and this whole year, really, um, and it's very topical. I rolled my eyes inside to all the conceited shepherds who think that this is always a dirty word. It's an abnormal year in that regard. And so we are going to bounce through some passages here in a minute. I, I really do um, want and need for you, if you haven't heard last week's message, it's really, really, really important that you hear every message over this kind of four or five weeks in the life of our church, like way more normal than normally so. And, uh, and so would you just do it for me? You know, just do it for me. And if you have a hard time just doing it for me, just think, my pastor's preaching through the flu every week right now. So I should give my time to what he's giving his time to while he's sick and hear what he has to say for our church, okay? Just do it. If you need some motivation to get you over the edge to do it for me, I'm asking for your pity to do it for me, okay? <laughs> this is my way of begging you <laughs> to do this. Um, it's really that important. Pastorally, apparently I'm going to be a little emotional through this sermon, and most of it really shouldn't be that emotional, but there was a part of it that is that I was thinking a lot about while we were worshiping the Lord there, and you'll know what I mean in a moment. Pastorally, I have a couple goals today and over the next several weeks. I just want to state them again. Raise the importance. I want to raise the importance of baptism in your heart and mind the way Scripture does. I want to raise the importance in your heart and mind of baptism the way Scripture does. Unfortunately, in all of our kind of arguing about this and that about baptism, the beauty and importance of baptism just gets lost in all of it. And so I want to raise the importance of it. I think for our church, there's things for us to additionally just learn and teach about, for us to grow the importance of it. And I think that's already happening. But I want to elevate our thinking to how Scripture speaks about baptism. Then I have a second goal, pastorally. And the second goal is to lower the willingness for division in Christ's church over baptism. You know, two goals here that seem very at odds with one another. To lower the willingness for division in Christ's church over baptism. Meaning that there are ways for those who practice infant baptism or want to, and those who practice believer's baptism to live together in one particular local church. It is possible. Churches do it. I will talk more about that in a couple weeks. Jason Lloyd-Jones was a Baptist pastoring a Presbyterian church.
That's got, that should mean something to us. Right? That should mean something. Now remember, to understand the meaning of baptism, you have to start with what the two sacraments or ordinances are. Some of the characteristics of the New Testament sacraments that helps us begin to get to the meaning of baptism. One, they're divinely instituted by Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, they're outward signs of invisible realities. Things like what this message is going to be in a moment, death and resurrection, washing and purification, passing through waters of judgment, and this is in regards to baptism. All of these are symbolized in um, the waters of baptism. Third, they're seals of covenant membership. That's what Romans 4.11 is telling us. Speaking of Abraham and God's covenant with him, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. We receive the sign of baptism as our initiatory right as Christians and the Lord's table as our perpetual right. And they are New Testament signs and seals of new covenant membership, of a membership that we possess before we actually walk into them. Just like Abraham possessed a righteousness by faith before he was circumcised. So just as circumcision was a sign and seal of old covenant membership, the Lord's table and baptism are our initiatory right and perpetual right and signs and seals of new covenant membership. Now, the importance all through church history has been what James Bannerman says when he says this. The spiritual virtue of sacraments is more and greater than other ordinances. Just because from their very nature, other ordinances, what are other ordinances? Remember, things like Christ and the word preached. Things like public worship, prayer, the reading of Scripture. These are all ordinances and means of grace to us. But the sacraments, the term sacrament used to distinguish the Lord's table and baptism from the other ordinances, the spiritual virtue of sacraments is more and greater than other ordinances just because from their very nature they imply more of a personal dealing between the sinner and his Savior than non-sacramental ordinances necessarily involve. That's quite a statement, but um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. And this is more than in every ordinance that Jesus has instituted. Now, the rest of this message is looking at a few passages of Scripture in order to remind us of what is represented in baptism. What is the meaning of it? What do we do it? What is it for? And I need to say, I have in mind believer's baptism in this message. Okay? It's really important for you to keep that in mind. I have in mind believer's baptism in this message. And it's important that you understand something because... One of the things that is often thought by Baptists about Presbyterians, and I'll talk down the road here, maybe in a couple weeks, um, about the way Baptists have sinned against Presbyterians and Presbyterians have sinned against Baptists. I'll talk about that down the road, okay? 
but we're all in agreement on the meaning of believer's baptism. We're all in agreement on the meaning of believer's baptism. And sometimes there's a misunderstanding that Presbyterians don't even practice believer's baptism. But that's not true. They do practice it for anyone who was not baptized as an infant and who comes to Christ and is saved at a later time. They practice believer's baptism. And then that person is baptized. So the meaning here is identical across the dividing lines when it comes to baptizing, you know, believing children and believing adults. Um, The meaning here is in full agreement. And more could be said than what I'll say this morning, of course. The ways that there are differences when it comes to baptism is specifically when it comes to infants. But in this message, which I'm not addressing infant baptism, um, that will come later. There is agreement. And it's not like... Presbyterians look at the Bible and see all of the examples in the New Testament of believers' baptism, which most explicitly, most explicitly in the New Testament, that is all we have. Most explicitly, right, Josh? In the, most explicitly in the New Testament, that is all we have. That's true. And a Presbyterian has to accept that that's true. I'm not saying that you can't find ways to see infant baptism in the New Testament, but most explicitly, believers' baptism is the only thing we have an example of in the New Testament. So, And a humble Presbyterian would agree with that. And so it's not like Presbyterians look at the New Testament and see that reality that I just said that is true. You know, there's a lot of proud Presbyterians. They won't fess up to anything. But a humble Presbyterian would understand what I'm saying. And it's not like they look at all those and go, yeah, all those examples of believers in baptism don't matter at all. Any decent, even just a decent Presbyterian wouldn't do that. I mean, so they practice believers' baptism. And it's important that I think for the Baptist side of the coin to understand that reality and to not just kind of get confused uh, about how things actually are working and how... Well, it's important for us to understand where we actually agree. Is it okay in our day and age to state where you agree with someone? Is it okay? Can you state where you agree with someone? Is that okay? Could that actually be a loving thing to do? Rather than just criticize everyone and everyone about everything and make it the mark of my stand for truth? Is it okay, you know, to say where we just agree with someone? Right? One of the marks of good debate and good dialogue is stating where you agree with someone. One of the marks of love is stating where you agree with someone. 
then we have to kind of understand that one of the dangers to a study like this has nothing to do with Scripture itself, except for the fact that we just live in a completely loveless culture. It's very, very cold. Now, can I just make a side note about this that has me in tears this morning? About you and your marriages. And if you're single, listen up. I'm just going to digress for a couple minutes about this as a way of both applying this principle to you and illustrating the point that we need to make beyond just our marriages about baptism in the church and when it comes to some of our theological divisions and debates, okay? So that's how this is connected. The other way it's connected is I'm your pastor, and I talk to all of you all the time about all kinds of things. And where did our lovelessness come from? Where did our lovelessness as a culture come from? Well, right, there's several answers to that. But just think with me for a second. Isn't one of the reasons that there's lovelessness relationally in our culture is because there's lovelessness in marriages in the church? If Christian husbands and Christian wives, let alone a Christian wife and an unbelieving husband, or vice versa, but if Christian husbands and Christian wives, marriages persist in lovelessness, what do you think is going to be the fruit of that at a national level eventually? You know me, and I just won't for a second let you dare to think you have no responsibility in what our culture is today. And to look at it and think that somehow all those people are bad and you're getting it right. I am just sick of it. I'm just sick of it. You should be sick of it. You should be sick of yourself at how little you see it in yourself and your responsibility in what has been produced nationally. You should just be sick over it. If Christians just tick along in lovelessness in the church for long enough, how in the world would our culture have any hope? I'm going to say this specifically on purpose in this way. I have two frustrations and discouragements about your marriages. I actually get frustrated over it, and then I actually just cry about it. For the men, would you please learn how to talk to your wife? Would you please learn how to talk to her with kindness, 
and tenderness and sweetness. Try like sometime, just once a year, to do something that has like a romantic affection connected to it. I know your wife won't be happy with once a year, but I'll be happier. Would you just finally figure out how to relate to her as a woman? And just for our men. I had this in my notes, then I took it out. Well, it's coming out. Stop being gay. Stop relating to your wife like she's a man. Don't love the same as you. That's what your selfishness naturally does. You act gay. You don't know, then don't think about it as acting gay, but it is acting gay. You're talking to your wife like she's a man. That's being gay. That's loving yourself. That's what gayness is. You have to love a woman who's different than you, which requires selflessness and not being gay. I'm not saying you're gay. I'm saying you're being gay. And I'll just tell you, it's so discouraging. Because I just think, have I not modeled for you how to talk to your wives? Have I not modeled for you how to relate to people? So why are you persisting against God in being of such stubborn heart to keep loving yourself instead of loving the woman that God gave you? For the women, would you please Learn how to build up your husband how to give him your respect all the time. Rather than tear him down with loveless and hopeless and disrespectful words. Your hopeless words and disrespectful words are just a drag on your marriage. And why you continue in the self-deception that you think you're helping something is just so discouraging. Would you look at my wife? Has my wife not modeled for you for a decade? Sweet and meek spirit. 
and a willingness to walk in the room and still say to me at the right time, And my wife has to put up with my sickly self now. How to come in the room and say at the right time, well, did you repent yet? So why are you persisting against God? in being of such a stubborn heart. I don't have any expectation that you would have this fixed by tomorrow morning. The expectation I do have is you would show godlier sorrow over yourself by tomorrow morning. That's my expectation. The other expectation I have is that you would actually spend some time coming together in your marriage ASAP and writing some things down that you agree about and are on the same page about and brainstorming a list as long as you can go. And that will help you. That will help you. Because you, you always feel is there's conflict and alienation. But the fact is, when you live together long enough, there's a lot of things that you do agree about and are on the same page about. In other words, you do have oneness intimacy, even though you don't feel it all the time. And so women, please stop being idolaters of the feelings of intimacy. Just stop. Cultivate reality, live in reality, and actually build real intimacy that's more lasting than the feelings of intimacy. Just stop your idolatry of the feelings of intimacy. And come together and build real intimacy, whether it creates the feelings of it. Those were the butterflies. Butterflies. Or not whether it creates them or not. Because it builds real intimacy to just sit down and just think, you know, we have plenty of conflict. There's plenty for us to grow on. But let's just write what we're together on. What have we grown together on? And rehearse that a little bit. Because it's a loving thing to state where you're in agreement. Now, What hope for our culture to ever have love if our marriages don't actually have love? And if they don't give thanks to God, if you don't give thanks to God for the love that you do have, rather than keep grumbling and complaining about the love that you don't have yet. I mean, I just want to say, shame on you for acting like children. Grow up and be adults. Okay. Now, I know I have probably lost you for the rest of this sermon. Because I knew, know you do want to take to heart my admonishments, and that's what you're going to be thinking about. And so, 
the rest of this is going to be fairly quickly on where we agree, Baptists and Presbyterians, on the meaning of baptism. We agree that baptism symbolizes death and resurrection. We agree that baptism symbolizes death and resurrection. If you're still in Romans chapter 6, look down at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Meaning died to the ruling power of sin over us. Still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we agree that baptism, the baptism that's being spoken of here is spiritual baptism, but this is what baptism symbolizes. We agree that baptism symbolizes death and resurrection. In all honesty, there's some debate about how much the meaning of the inward baptism of heart applies to the mode of baptism here. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, But all agree that baptism symbolizes death and resurrection just as baptism of the Spirit, which is taught here, brings about in us a real death and resurrection. What dies? So what dies? The old self. The old nature. Sins in the context. Sins ruling power over us. The heart and mind that were hostile to God. The child of wrath dies. The part of you committed to rebellion against God dies. Spiritual deadness dies. The penalty for your sins dies in the justice being served by the Son of God. Death itself dies. Cursedness dies. Judgment dies. The eternal wrath of God dies for the precious saint baptized by His Spirit. And so, baptism in the washing with water, let's assume immersion, which I think best illustrates the nature of what's happening in uh, spiritual baptism. Go under the water, and it's symbolizing that you have died with Christ. So what raises from the dead? What raises from the dead is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, um, just as we too might walk in newness of life, the new self, the new nature, the new life, the new creation that God has made in the heart by His Holy Spirit, the heart and mind in submission to God, wanting to please God, serve God, give glory to God rather than self, the new ability to obey God. Rather than to rebel against him, new power by his spirit dwelling in the inner man. The born again person rises from death. Blessedness rather than cursedness. You die to cursedness and rise to God's blessing. You die to the judgment of God and raised to abundant and eternal life. What rises is a heart given to righteousness and submitted to the rule of God over your life. The power of sin dies. 
the rule of righteousness rises. So baptism's meaning is understood to symbol death and resurrection of the inner death and resurrection that takes place at conversion. Now, this is why I believe immersion best symbolizes the burial in death, going down under the water, rising to new life as you come up out of the water. But I will say this, the mode of baptism is far less important than we have wanted to make it when it comes to creating divisions in Christ's church. What if there was no water? What if all you had was a pile of hay? Can I just baptize somebody in it? I mean, what if there was just a pile of hay? There was no water. I'd do it. I'd do it. I'll just leave that there. I'd do it. I'd even argue that God would accept it. Secondly, I don't know if we agree about that, but Baptists and Presbyterians agree that baptism symbolizes the washing and purification from sins. Titus 1.5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's not necessarily a reference to baptism explicitly. But if you turn with me to Acts chapter 22, what happened with the Apostle Paul? And the Apostle Paul giving his testimony of how he, his sight was restored. In Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 12, And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. That's just amazing. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And then he said to the Apostle Paul, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so we agree here that baptism, and I think the context of comparing Scripture, the only conclusion you can reach here is that it symbolizes the washing and purification from sins. It's not baptism itself that does this, but the change of heart and life brought about by God in your conversion. In the great passage in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is why we sing, what can wash away my sins? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so going down into the water and coming up out of the water and feeling the water is symbolic of the washing away of my sins by the blood of Jesus. We agree that baptism symbolizes the washing and purification from sins. Third, this. We agree that baptism symbolizes our passing through the waters of judgment safely. Flip back several books to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Let's just pick it up in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, it's because you've come to recognize, I am unrighteous, and I need Christ the righteous to die for me. If you still think yourself righteous, then you can't be a Christian. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we agree that baptism symbolizes our passing through the waters of judgment safely. Jonah, passing through the waters of death safely. Israel in the Exodus, passing through the waters of the Red Sea safely. Baptism symbolizes, and praise God, that it is true that we pass safely through the waters of God's judgment. It's just amazing. And baptism symbolizes that we have escaped God's judgment and passed through safely. Finally, this. We agree that baptism marks Christians out from the world and for His church. Flip back to Acts chapter 2. We agree that baptism marks Christians out from the world and for His church. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter preaches this message of the gospel to the Jews. In uh, verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. No one is saved without being cut to the heart. Have you been cut to the heart for your sin? And because of your sin... They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, 
Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, think about this for a second. When a Jew in Acts chapter 2 was coming forward to be baptized in front of other Jews, what was the risk? Death. The risk was death. These are the same Jews that just put Jesus to death. That's what this message is. You crucified Jesus at the hands of lawless men. That's what Peter's message is. Look at it. That's what he says. The risk was death. And what baptism did was mark out those who were willing to follow Christ. It marked out those who had faith. This is why today we have to be a little bit more careful about baptism because oftentimes when someone's baptized today, unless they come from a pretty rigid Catholic family, oftentimes there's not really a cost to baptism other than the fear of standing in front of people and sharing a little of your testimony. So we have to be a little more careful, a little more slower with it because there's no cost There's no cost a majority of the time. And, or maybe a Muslim family or a Hindu family or something like that, then there's a cost. Specifically at the point of baptism. Why? Because they all know that the baptism is the marking out that I follow Jesus, the Son of God. And that I am leaving behind everywhere else that I came from. That's why families get upset about it. And so when we think about baptism, here was marking out for Christ's church publicly those who had been saved. The initial mark or sign of a member of the new covenant's obedience to God in baptism. This is the initial mark. In an ideal world, baptism in water would be quickly followed after baptism by God's Spirit. Took me three years. Non-ideal world. When we're talking about grown children or adults who are able to be baptized as believers, we all agree on these points and more could be said. Now, where there is agreement, let us make sure to state some agreement. Let us not be afraid, foolishly, that because we state the agreement, that if we state agreement, everyone's going to go to the dark side. Whichever side is the dark side. Let me just say, it's inevitable in a church like ours, in a church that's grown in humility, in a church that cares and value Scripture, and in a church that's kind of done with anemic, weak theology, and a church that recognizes that we're not greater than history, and in most ways we are way worse than history. In other words, we have not built well on the godly saints that have come before us since the Reformation. We have forsaken it. And in a church like ours, when you start to read them 
think about them and you think about what Scripture says, it really is inevitable that over time, and really this is true anywhere, that people's opinion of the Bible's teaching on baptism will change. It's just inevitable. So how do we handle that? How do we handle that? Well, the normal way to handle it is once you change, you leave the church and go somewhere else. I mean, that's the way you handle it. Or the church tells you, oh, you're going to have to go somewhere else. And those are the only option. That's the only option. That's it. So how do we handle that? Well, we go, well, we just assume that's the only option. That's what I'm going to argue. We just assume that's the only option. And that righteousness demands that. And we kick them down the road. And then we argue why we absolutely cannot ever live together over this issue. I want to say this. If, if you want and need to be baptized, Esteban's going to email you our baptism application after the service today. And uh, if you're on our email list, if you're not, you should get on it. Or ask Esteban for the application. You should read it. You should read through it. You should read what it teaches about baptism. And then uh, fill it out. And let us know when you're ready to talk about it. I'm going to come back to one thing. If you're hung up that I use the word frustrated and discouraged with a couple things about your marriages, I'm not sitting back just mad at you all the time. But it's pretty frustrating. And you know that I love you. But it's also important that you understand that the sins you commit in your home perpetually aren't just sins committed in your home perpetually. Sin affects the whole body. And living in it perpetually in ways that it's time to grow up over. I get we're not going to fix it all. We live in a non-ideal world. I don't really oppress you with that. You know? But then there's also true that we need to grow. We need to grow. And I'm less concerned that you get it right by tomorrow than I am that you start to show more godly sorrow about yourself before tomorrow, okay? I don't live in a state of perpetual frustration because sometimes I just cry over you. And I just think, why can you not just love each other? You've got all your reasons. I have less reasons for your spouse than you do, trust me. I have way less reasons for why you shouldn't love your spouse than you do. Well, you don't know because you don't live in my home. No, no, I don't buy that. 
Don't buy it. I think I probably know. Might even know better than you. I just want you to love each other. So spend some time working on what you're in agreement about. Because it will help you come together. Just like a church has to spend some time thinking about what it's in agreement about as it talks about what it's in disagreement about. But if all you talk about is what your disagreement is about, there's not going to be love in the church, and there's not going to be love in your home. Understand? Stand with me for prayer. Father, we just have a simple prayer. It's that you would make us one in the church together, in reality. Letting love cover a multitude of sins. Letting love live together in strong disagreements. Letting love live together where we can do that. Father, of course, make us faithful in ways we must demonstrate division. For the sake of your truth, help us to be faithful in that also. But help us to know what's of most importance. Make us one in our homes. Make us one in the church. Thank you that this is what Jesus prayed for and these are things that you do. These are prayers that you answer and that you accomplish. And I... We pray together now that it would be so, even on trying to figure out something like baptism. Help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.